Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. This is episode 35, Young Drew at Winchester, with Andrew Spalick. I'm Jonathan Mangus, and our special guest today from St. Louis, Missouri, is Andrew Spalick. And joining the show today from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, is Robert McLaughlin. And from Charlottesville, Virginia, is Allie Ryder. Thanks, for everybody, for being on the show today. Andy Spalick was first on our podcast back in March to discuss Montague John Druitt, one of the suspects in, in the Whitechapel murders. The subject of that podcast mainly centered around the West of England MP Farquharson, who quite possibly was the source of Melvin McNaughton's private information, naming Druitt as a suspect. Now, since then, Andy has continued his research into Druitt, and this past summer made a trip to England in which he was able to see the archives at Winchester College, which Druitt uh, attended in the earlier years of Druitt's life. In these archives, he discovered various documents relating to Druitt's club memberships that he was in and and different uh, school activities Druitt was involved in, as well as six new photos, three portraits, and three group shots of Montague Druitt. So, Andy, thanks again for being on the show. Can you tell us a little bit about your trip to Winchester College? Yeah, yeah, I'd be glad to. It was really an exciting trip. I was uh, in England for a month this last summer on uh, sabbatical, but I had a lot of spare time, a lot of free time to do some poking around and at some Ripper-related uh, research, particularly Druid-related. And my first two weeks in England, I was staying in a little town called Fareham in the south of England, which is kind of centrally located for doing Druid research. It's not far at all from Winchester. So I, I was able to visit Winchester College. I was able to go over to Chichester, where there is, uh, in the uh, West Sussex Record Office, there's quite a cache of Druid family information there. And I was able to get over to Bournemouth and do a little bit of poking around in that area, too. But uh, I guess we want to talk about Winchester mainly today. And, and that was kind of interesting because I had, just before I left for England, shortly before I left, uh, somebody on the on the casebook threads, I think it might have been Chris George, but somebody indicated that in Dan Farson's, the paperback version of Dan Farson's book, there was a little cryptic reference to somebody at Winchester having known of the Druid family's suspicion of Montague Druid in the, in the 1890s. And uh, Farson, I don't have the paperback version, I only have the hardback version, but apparently Farson referenced the Winchester School newspaper, the Wickhamist, from some issue in the 1970s that, that indicated this. So my first thought, I wanted to get hold of a copy of that, uh, of that article there to see what it said. And so I contacted the librarian at Winchester saying, well, if I stop by, could I, could I see this uh, issue of the Wickhamist? And he said, yeah, that would be fine. But he also then referred me to the archivist there, a very helpful woman by the name of Suzanne Foster, and in fact uh, gave me her email address. And I started emailing Suzanne, and we made an appointment, and uh, and she was just so very helpful. I just... Uh, uh, she, we, we made an appointment, and I showed up at the uh, archives, and she had everything laid out on the table in front of me. There were these photographs, and there was uh, various back issues of the Wickhamist, and there was uh, other archival information relating to Druitt. There was the, uh, I had to ask her to produce this, but she did, uh, the uh, Minutes of the Debating Society, which Druitt was uh, a member of. So I just had a whole trove of information and a whole day to go through it. And she also took me on a tour of the campus and got to see the... Uh, the engraving and the paneling there where, where Druitt had uh, 
had his name carved in the wall. So it was really a, a really a thrilling day. Did this uh, archivist have to go through different locations within the archives to find out information of Druitt, or do they have it categorized by student so she could just pull out a file with Druitt's name on it, essentially? And, I mean, how 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 was she able to compile all of this information for you? Yeah, there, there is a file on Druitt there, quite a file on Druitt that has uh, uh, a lot of documents in it. It has the main thing in it, I'd say, or one of the main things in it is a whole cache of correspondence between Dan Farson when he was writing his book and the archivist at that time. And that was kind of interesting to go through Farson's letters. But in addition to that, there were a number of other things. She produced some uh, photograph albums, one album in particular that she explained had been forgotten. It had been laying in the basement of the Winchester Public Library for decades. And in cleaning the library, somebody noticed this and said, oh, this really should go over to the Winchester College Archives. And uh, and they gave it to the, the College Archives. But that is one of the sources of, of the many Druid photos. So, you know, Farson never had a chance at that one. It was lying in the basement of the, of the public library somewhere forgotten. Um, and it's only recently been uncovered. But she had other photographic photo albums that she produced, too, of the various students and so forth, some of them showing group pictures and some showing individual shots. And then, of course, the debating society minutes and the back issues of the Wickhamist. So, yeah, there is a file on Druid, but a lot of other information, too. And you mentioned Dan Farson, who wrote mm-hmm. the book Jack the Ripper in 1972, right. um, um, being in contact with Winchester College. Farson, uh, you assume, was just completely unaware that, that this photo album even existed? Yeah, the, the one that was uh, recently uncovered, he would have, in 72, he would have been completely unaware of it. Now, I don't know, Winchester, you, you had mentioned that these are six new photographs. That's actually not quite true. One of the photographs that I published in the uh, recent article in Ripperologist was one that we've seen before, but it's a, it's a much, it's a first-generation copy, a much clearer copy. But there are five ones that we haven't seen before. And whether Farson saw any of those, I don't know. He couldn't have seen the ones in the album that wasn't uncovered. He may have seen one or two of the others, but uh, uh, didn't choose to publish them. Now, at what age did Druitt begin attending Winchester College? He came to Winchester in 1870. He was born in 1857, so he would have been 13. Just just 13 when he came to Winchester. Three of the portraits that you have that were reprinted in, in um, issue 96, I believe it was, Ripperologist. Right. Uh, you have one at him age 13, age 15, and then age 17. Yeah, I'm ge- on the individual portraits, I'm guessing at the ages because they're not dated. But uh, that's what it looks approximately to me like, yeah. Mm-hmm. The group photos were dated, so I do know the years on those. He was a student at Winchester College from when he was 13 years old to roughly around 19 or 20? Yeah, it would have been about 19. Let's see, uh, 1876 he left, so... Yeah, he would have been just uh, turning turning 19. Okay. And the group photographs have him uh, around the ages of, 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 I guess, 16, which is in 1873, 18 years old, and then 19 years old in 1876. Yeah. So we have a pretty good span, um, not all portraits, but, you know, from 13 to 19, we have right. it almost entirely covered. 
Right. Now, with the group photographs, mm-hmm. were, how are you able to identify which individual in, in the group photographs is Druitt? Well, Suzanne, the archivist, actually pointed him out to me in each of these. He's, he's pretty recognizable primarily because he's always got that hairdo with the part in the middle, and that was, uh, that was not too common back then. He's the only one in the pictures that has that hairstyle. And he always stands in the same place in his group photos. So, you know, once you've picked him out in one of them, it's not difficult at all to see him, uh, to, to see where he is in the others and, and to recognize that it is Druid. And Andy, uh, do you know where uh, uh, the group photo was taken? Where at Winchester College? Yes. The exact spot? I do. I know the exact spot. It was taken on the steps that lead into the dining hall. And okay, uh, Suzanne took me into the dining hall, too. And uh, Yeah, but they were taken on the steps to the dining hall. Mm-hmm. Would this just be um, a, a certain class that, that gathered for this photograph? I, I suspect, looking at the photos in the age range, that that was, must have been the entire student body. It doesn't look like a lot of people, but... Um, you know, the ages range from the very young boys to late teens, so it, I, I'm assuming it must have been the entire student body. And excuse my ignorance, but was Winchester College kind of like a preparatory school for him, him later going on to um, Oxford? Um, right. Thir- 13 years to 19 years, I mean, it's, it's referred to as Winchester College, but for us in the United States, you know, a college typically starts uh, at around the age of 18 or 19. Right. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, and the, you know, of course, the, the British uh, education system is a lot different from our American system, but that's exactly it, yeah. Uh, Winchester College was one of the more presti- is one of the more prestigious colleges or university prep schools in England. Uh, Eton, you know, is probably the most famous, and but Winchester is right up there, would be a competitor of, of Eton, for example. So he, he was doing quite well to be at Winchester. Okay. And what do you believe the uh, photographs tell us about Druitt? Well, a partic- the group photos I find the most interesting because uh, you get some idea of his size there because he's with other people. And his height is a little bit different, to, difficult to determine because they're standing on steps and you, you can't see the steps. So you're never quite sure who's standing on which step. But to me, he looks like he's more than, uh, more than average height, taller than average height. And one photo in particular shows him to be, I believe, quite broad-shouldered. So I think he was a rather large man. We really didn't have any good indication of his size before this, but he seems to be, you know, certainly he was athletic. He seems to be a rather large man. And the other thing that's interesting in, in some of the group photos, one in particular is his sense of humor because he's, he's clowning around in one of them. He's got his arm cocked and he's leaning on the shoulder of the person next to him and he's just sort of hamming it up for the camera. And everyone else in the picture is, uh, in the photo is, uh, you know, straight-faced and serious, but here's, here's Monty just kind of hamming it up and clowning around, which is kind of a side of him we've never seen before. Just hopping back to the individual photographs for a okay. second. Um, uh, one, one of them has uh, an identification mark for a photographer named W. Right. Savage. I was wondering yes. if you could uh, tell us a, a bit about the photographer. You know, I don't know a whole lot about the, about the photographer. I know that in the, in the most recent issue of uh, Ripperologist uh, uh, that's been gone into, but I know that he was a... a, a, a eminent photographer in, in Winchester, and I don't know whether he was, like, the official school photographer or, or whatnot, but he, uh, he was a uh, photographer that did quite a bit of work there and uh, quite a bit of 
famous photos. Uh, that's W. Savage was his, was his name. And actually, that photo that bears the Mark W. Savage, that's the one that we've seen before. That's the one that's been published before. But as I say, the one that appears in my article, I'm sure, was uh, first generation, taken from the original negative, so it's, it's, it's much more clear. You were also able to look through the archives and get a better sense of Druitt's time at Winchester College as far as his sporting activities and his, right. his academic uh, pursuits. Um, let's start with um, his sporting activities. Okay. Uh, can you uh, go into a little bit about uh, what we, – we know he was a cricketer. Um, yes. And um, could you go into a little bit about what new information you found out about, about his, Druitt as the sportsman? It was interesting. Um, I found out more details, nothing stunningly new, but more details. He, he, he was a cricketer, definitely. He also played football, or what we would call soccer, and it was, and it was regular football, not rugby football. And he participated in, in the spring. They, <clears throat> they would have a track and field competition, and he would always participate in that, too. But uh, his, his best sport, his most loved sport, certainly was cricket, and uh, at that point in his career, he was a good cricketer, a good bowler. Not outstanding, I would say, from the accounts of the cricket matches he participated in. He had some really good ones. He had some that weren't so good. But, uh, but he certainly was very active on, on the cricketing team there, on uh, several cricketing teams at, at, uh, at, at uh, Winchester. And found out a little bit more about his, his football career, too. He really didn't know anything other than that he had played it, but... Uh, in the article, it, it describes uh, some of the matches that he was in, and he apparently did quite well at, uh, at football. And then the track and field, uh, he didn't do quite so well in there. The one event that he did do well in was throwing the cricket ball, um, where he, he finished uh, second one time in, in throwing the cricket ball. Um, and, the, of course, the other sport was fives, that handball kind of a game, where he, he was very good at that. And, in fact, he actually won the, uh, the school championship one year. And as far as his um, academic pursuits, you, in your article, you went into his debating club that he was a right. member of. Now, debating society. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll talk about that here in a second. But I was wondering if you got a sense of what, what, what the general curriculum was. Because we know that right after Winchester College, he went to teach at the uh, school in Blackheath. Well, that was after and, Oxford. He uh, went to Oxford. After, from, after Oxford. Yeah. So I'm, right. I'm wondering if, if you were able to find out, uh, aside from his debating activities, what other kind of general courses he may have taken an interest in. Or... Yeah, no, that's, that's one thing I didn't, uh, I didn't explore. It would have been a good question, actually, for the archivist, but it, I didn't think of it. But, um, no, I do have the, the uh, record of his debates, the debates he was in, but I suspect it was probably a more or less of a classics kind of a study because he went on to Oxford studied classics. So it was probably the classical languages and, uh, you know, the classical literature, probably basic mathematics and so forth. But um, he was not at that time yet preparing for law, to study law specifically, so don't think he would have gotten involved in that too much. Though one of the debates he was in definitely had to do with law, had to do with the, uh, the uh, was it the Tichborn trial? Um, but as far as what the specific curriculum was, no, I don't actually don't know for sure. And his um, debate regarding the Tichborne claimant, right? Uh, tell us a little bit about the position he took on, in that debate. So I, th- I thought that that was kind of interesting. Yeah, um, the 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 proposition that was to be debated was this: that 
In the opinion of this House, the debating society, in the opinion of this House, the conduct of the government in the Tichborne trial is worthy of the severest condemnation. Now, Druitt spoke in favor of that proposition. So, in other words, Druitt is saying, yes, the conduct of the government is worthy of the severest condemnation. Um, it's interesting, there's a little note in there that says that Druitt came unprepared to speak that day, but he went ahead and spoke anyway. And he argued that the uh, the judge, the Lord Chief Justice, had been prejudiced in the trial, and, uh, and you know, that the trial was not a fair trial at all. And it was just kind of interesting to see that at this early point in his academic career, Druid is starting to show an interest in, in court proceedings and legal proceedings. Now, of course, he had relatives who were solicitors and uh, uh, legal people. His own brother would be, wouldn't, wouldn't have been at that time yet, but would eventually be. But he had an uncle, James Druid, who was quite a, quite a, a noted solicitor, too. But it's interesting that he is displaying there a little bit of a a little bit of an aptitude and interest in, in legal proceedings. Right. And at the same time, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, wasn't the government's position on the Tichburn case, uh, I mean, they, they were opposed to the claimant. Right. So so Druitt's uh, taking a position contrary to the government's position. So he's yeah. showing a little bit of independence there. And also yeah. um, uh, he's apparently taking the side um, in this debate anyway, not that those were his real views, but he was taking mm-hmm. the side uh, of the claimant against the uh, the family, the Tichborn family. Yeah. Well, he was at least saying that the trial was not fair. Yeah. Right. Because the, because the judge was uh, prejudiced. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and I believe back to Robert's question about the uh, photographer. The photographer later yeah. later was uh, involved in taking a series of photographs of the Tichborne claimant. Yes, that's true. Um, that they ended up uh, using in court. That's true, yes. So. Yeah, you know, and you mentioned that this might not have been Druitt's actual views, but it was what he argued. I got the impression, it was. it's difficult to say for sure, but I got the impression that the students in the debating society were actually arguing their own personal views. What it seems like is that somebody put forward a proposition and somebody else seconded it, and then they, they simply pick sides depending upon where they stood on the issue. Uh, I don't know that 100% for sure, but that's the, the impression I got. So I would say that when we, when we look at the positions Drew took on these issues, that those were probably his actual feelings on them. Yeah, and and add to that, if he was unprepared to argue one way or another, right? Then you would think he would have uh, picked the uh, the side that most uh, suited his personal beliefs, because that would have been easier for him. Sure, so, right. Well, I found um, all of that information that you were able to uncover very interesting. Anyone else have any uh, comments on the photographs before we move on, or? Uh, one thing I'd like to point out is that uh, often people uh, have uh, said, "Oh, Druitt, uh, you know, looks like Prince Eddie." Yeah. And I think when you look at the whole range of photographs that that you come up with, Andy, that he doesn't look like Prince Eddie. No. I think you know it's it's very important to to say that because I mean we all have we all know that one where he's sitting at the desk there and. Um, and another thing too is that physically, I mean, most people have described him as as thin, and it, it seems very clear, especially from the group photographs, that he isn't no. thin. That he that he does seem quite a bit larger than his classmates. He's he's definitely a broad-shouldered individual, yeah, and uh, and well dressed too. I would say that the, uh, the individual portraits show him to be to be quite well dressed. So uh, you know, he was already a 
from a wealthy family who's well-to-do. Wouldn't there have been uniforms in a college of that nature in hmm. England? So would his dress really have been? It's just interesting to me because when I was question. reading when I was reading your um, Ripperologist article where some of these papers appear, I noticed you have a tendency to uh, sort of read into the pictures. Uh, you said things like his eyes are lost and distant. And I yeah. remember, and I'm looking at these pictures going, he doesn't look lost and distant to me. <laughs> I mean, what, what is he seeing? And I'm just wondering how much of what you view him as in your mind has influenced what you see in these pictures because yeah. I don't see any of the things that you, that you see. That's interesting. Uh, the question on uniforms is another question I didn't think to ask, but in the group photos, it, they appear to be wearing ordinary clothing, so I, I don't think there were uniforms as we would see in uh, English schools today. Um, dress code, perhaps, but uh, they seem to be wearing ordinary clothing there. But, yeah, as far as... Uh, you know, just facial expressions and so forth. The the first two uh, individual photos where he's the youngest at, at, at about age 13 and about age 15. Um, what I see in that photo is, is, a, is a sort of a distant stare, like uh, forlorn, forlorn or, or lost, uh, daydreaming or whatever. Now, you know, I don't know, maybe he was just that way on that day or something. But that's what I see in those first two. Now, the latter two, where he's a bit older, he looks more confident to me. He looks like he's he's gained his confidence. He's he's you know he's no longer that lost, forlorn uh, individual. But you raise a good point because uh, you know the impression we have of Drew, particularly his his later life and his suicide and so forth, he seems to have been a, a lonely, lonely, depressed kind of a person. And uh, knowing that, it's easy to go back and look at these photos and read some of that into it. That's true. Now, in the debating club that he was a member of, Drew right. was the treasurer and the secretary, correct? For for a brief time, not for the whole time, but for a brief time he, he served in each of those offices, yeah. And the, the vice president of the debating society was Edward Cook. Uh, right. Was Cook the vice president of the debating society throughout Drew's entire uh, time at Winchester? Or I know? don't know if it was throughout the entire time, but it was for a long period of time. It was for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And, and Drew, it became treasurer and secretary, I assume, towards the latter part of, yeah. of, of, of his stay at that college. I think it might have been 1875. Yeah, I think we've been during his last year. Yeah. Okay. Um, there seemed to have been a bit of a turnover in the debating society, and a lot of members had left or been tossed out, and there was a openings in those offices that needed to be filled, and Drew it, uh, filled them. So Now, in the past, people have been uh, interested in placing Druitt in the East End, whether it's um, King's Bench Walk or the different train stations that he would be uh, exiting from um, in the area. But this connection with Edward Cook adds another East End connection to Druitt. Yeah, Um, it does. Edward Cook went on to help found the People's Palace in the East End. We assume Druitt uh, knew Edward Cook, of course, because of both of their positions in the debating society at Winchester. Right. And and, uh, Cook went on to uh, help found the People's Palace in the east end of London. Right. Um, And I believe that they had some association with Toynbee Hall. Uh, I know they were located right near each other. Yes. And I believe they were kind of rival organizations. Sort of, Uh, yeah. Chris Scott has uncovered that Druitt donated... A small sum of money mm-hmm. as a subscriber to the People's Palace. So, right. 
please go go into what you know of the People's Palace and its location in the East and what kind of services it offered to the local population and what might connect Druitt to the East End through that route. Okay, well, let's start with, uh, with Edward Tyus Cook. Uh, as you mentioned, he was the vice president of the Debating Society and I would say probably its most influential member. And so Druitt certainly would have known him from Winchester days. But Edward Tyus Cook also was from Blackheath and lived at Blackheath at the same time Druitt taught at Blackheath, not too far from the school where Druitt taught. So not only did Druitt know him from Winchester days, he probably also knew him later on during the time he was at at, at Blackheath. But you're right in that Cook, later on, Cook became a a journalist, but later on he was uh, involved in, in forming the People's Palace in the East End. And the People's Palace, as I understand it, was a sort of a, it was a, a, what do I want to say, a counterpart to Toynbee Hall. Toynbee Hall was more of, I almost liken it to what we would call a community college today. It was, a, it was an educational opportunity for East End residents who didn't have the money or the wherewithal to go to Cambridge or to Oxford. But Cambridge and Oxford sort of came to them, and they would have lectures and so forth uh, uh, for people to attend there at Toynbee Hall. People's Palace, on the other hand, was more of a social, cultural kind of a thing. They would have dances, and they would have, you know, um, not so much the academic fair, but more on the cultural side of things. And I, that's why it was called the People's Palace, because it was, it was just a place for the people to come and, and to have a good time and to engage in those cultural activities. But Jack Cook was one of the founders of that. And as you mentioned, Chris uh, Scott uncovered an article of uh, listing donors for the People's Palace while it was being proposed, and lo and behold, on that list is Montague Druitt, who donated a pound. A pound doesn't sound like a lot, but if you do the monetary equivalent today, that's about 75 pounds today, so it's a, it's a fair chunk of, of money. So that demonstrates that Druitt at least had some interest in what was going on in the East End, and it, it may have been through his association with Cook. Uh, it may just have been because he was interested in the East End. I don't know, but at least it shows that he's he has some vested interest in what's happening right there in the heart of Ripper territory. I also want to point in that just because Druitt made a donation to a cause, that doesn't necessarily mean he had any interest whatsoever in the East End. I donate quite frequently to things I give no more of a passing thought to once the donation check is written. Um, it, it doesn't indicate any more than a passing interest in it, either through his friends. You make it seem like his donating to this cause is indicative of an interest in the East End. That's pretty much, I believe, your words. But again, we can't, you're, you're reading into it something I think that you want to be there. I give to uh, the Salvation Army, just as an example, since it's Christmas time, I couldn't give you, five, well, actually, that's not true. I no longer give to the Salvation Army, but I have in the past given to the Salvation Army with no more clue. And then, you know, I investigated a little bit and decided I didn't want to give to them anymore. So, I mean, I've given to places that I don't really know um, what they are just because they happen to be there. It happens to be fashionable. Um, You know, it's there. It's easy to donate. He knew Cook. It's there. It's easy to donate. Maybe he knew Cook. We don't know. Um, Well, I think he knew Cook. I think that's pretty well given. No. Why? Because he went to school with him? I went to school with lots of people. I couldn't tell you two bits about Yeah, but he he was in a debating society with a handful of people, and he was an officer, and Cook was an officer. And they lived together at Blackheath. 
I was in Key Club. That was I was in the Gifted Society. I was in the English National Honor Society. I was in Theta Society. That doesn't mean I know where those people are now in my life. No. That and I've lived very close to people who I've been in clubs with at school. But school is a lifetime away once you're an adult. So I just think that those kinds of I mean I'm sure he knew him while he was at school. But to say that, you know, he kept track of him after the fact, I think well, that is, again, reading into it what we want. To be. Well, but they the, the they donation, both lived in Blackheath at the same time, though, too. And the donation made, I believe, was in 1887, the list of the subscribers where, where uh-huh. Druid is made. So that's a considerable time after he left Winchester that he made the donation to this place associated with Cook. And it, and yeah. wouldn't you agree, even Allie, that... I mean, you say you'd make... Don't say even Allie. Well, no, because this is is, um, based on one of your points, is that uh, when you give to a charitable organization, you at least have some vague idea of what they do. For Druitt to donate uh, money to an organization that concerned itself with the plight of the East End, and this group, uh, you know, whose goal was to improve the living conditions of the poor in the East End, you would think that... Drew it. Sure, he may not have. We don't know that he went to the East End, but right. But he was at least by his donations proving that he was aware of this group and its activities in in improving the life of the East End. And he, you know, and it, you would have think he would have listed it as one of his minor concerns, if anything else, just just by donating it, right? Well, there's no smoking gun here. There's no right. proof of anything here. But you know, this would have been during the time when Druid and Cook lived in uh, in uh, Blackheath, and they would have known each other from the Winchester days. They lived near each other in Blackheath. It just suggests to me very strong possibility that uh, there was there was an interest on Druid's part in the East End. Not that he ever necessarily went there, but. There was possibly an interest there. But I've got to tell you something. I really I don't think it's that important to establish that. Um, some people have argued on the threads that, oh, we have to show that, that Druitt was in the East End, that he has some definite tie with the East End. He was in the East End at the time of the murders. There really isn't any suspect that you can place in the East End at the time of any given murder, except for Hutchinson, if you want to consider him a suspect. But uh, uh, there really isn't anybody that you can place there. Uh, we make assumptions all the time. We assume that people were there at the time of the murders, or they could have been. I will say that Montague Druitt lived in Blackheath. He was six miles from the East End. Um, he commuted to London probably, if not every day, several times a week, and his commute would have taken him to a rail station in a very short distance from Mitre Square. He potentially had a relative by the name of Jabez Druitt in the East End, um, there are a lot of indications that Druitt may have had ties to the East End. And back to uh, Edward Cook, just to flesh out a little bit more of um, the similarities uh, between Druitt and Cook. Um, I mean, Cook was the vice president of the debating society while Druitt was the treasurer. Uh, they, were right. the, they were the same age. Right. They, and they were pretty much neighbors in Blackheath, that you had said. They were classmates together at Winchester, but also they went on to be fellow classmates at New College Oxford. Is that correct? That's true. That's true. Mm-hmm. Um, so they so and, and like I said, they were the exact same age. So they're they're you know the likelihood of them being acquainted. I mean, it just seems obvious that you know they were classmates in the same deb- debating society, neighbors. 
went on. Okay, Oxford I'm sorry. But I just have to say no. My best friend in high school. She was my best friend. We went out to lunch every single day. We lost track. This was in Miami, Florida. I recently found out only via the magic of the internet that we are both now living in the same um, approximate geographical distance in Virginia. Purely through the magic of the internet did I find this information out. So saying that he went to school with this man, they were in the same debate society. This was my best friend in high school, and I only just recently found out that we had both moved from Florida to Virginia. So saying that they lived in Blackheath, again, you're making assumptions based on what we think would be the logical thing. Oh, they knew each other in school. They lived in the same city. Clearly, they had to be knowing each other. But this isn't necessarily the case. Um, You know, I did just find my friend. We met up for lunch. We had a very nice lunch. Am I still going to be in contact with her after that? Probably not because high school was high school and we're now. Right. But I think think what we're we're saying is that it's probable being that they were peers uh, the exact same age going to Winchester College together, living near each other in Blackheath, going on to being at New College Oxford together. One's the vice president of the debating society. Drew, the treasurer of the debating society. It's, it, it seems, it, it seems logical that if you're the treasurer of a debating society, you would know the vice, who the vice president of the debating society was. Because Knowing is one thing. Keeping in touch after high school. Well, yeah, but I mean, and then we, but we have on record him. I don't want to get in, you know, <laughs> destroy this, but um, you know, when we have a record of him um, donating money to Cook's cause um, in 1887, years later, then it does show an awareness. I, in my opinion, on Druitt's part, that that he that he knew what activities Cook was involved in. I mean, it doesn't matter one way or another, right. really, in the whole scheme of things. Um, but no, it does go to this whole assuming everything that's even vaguely in the area of being what we want well, but to be. What I, no, I, 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 don't, I don't think that's right. It's an assumption. That's true. But I think it's a perfectly plausible assumption. I'm not saying I know 100% that it's true that he kept up with Cook. Right. But I'm just saying the the, the the evidence we have there certainly suggests it. But it, in the end, you're right. It doesn't really matter. Um, right. And know. it would hold the same weight and salt if Cook had nothing to do with the People's Palace. To, to have a record that showed that Drew donated to the cause is interesting. It may not mean anything, you know, but, but you can take Cook's involvement in this organization out of it. And the fact that we have drew it as a list of subscribers on the in the people's palace in the east end is interesting in and of itself um right without you know i can argue the opposite and say maybe it was because i can argue any side of a coin you give me but maybe it was (laughs) on the one hand you say it was indicative of oh he knew cook on the other it could be indicative of the fact that but you then you also say well it shows an interest in the east end well maybe it was nothing more than he ran into cook cook goes oh i've got this great charity how about flipping me a few pounds for it? And that was where his interest in the East End lied and died. And he had no right. interest in the East End then. He ran into an old schoolmate who said, flip me a few pounds for for my charity. And That's entirely possible. That's, that's certainly possible, yeah. Okay, so you had mentioned um, Jabez Druitt. Yes. Andy, who uh, now... 
to the ire of, of Allie, I'm going to ask you one more question. <laughs> no, Allie will like this. No <laughs> There's no ire. I just don't like assumptions based on presumptions that are treated as if they're significant when they're not. We make assumptions all the time. As long as we don't treat them as facts, we can make assumptions if they're reasonable ones. <laughs> the People's Palace was located where in the East End? Ah. Uh, Oh, well, you would ask. It was a Bethnal Green? Mile End Road, was it not? Was it? Okay. Or, or yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Which um, is where Jabez Druitt lived. On the same road, yes. Um, not not real close to it, but the same road, and certainly within the confines of the East End, yes. Now, what, what's Jabez Druitt's relation to the family of, of Montague Druitt? Well, that's a little bit in question. Um we knew of Jabez Druitt because in Chichester, in the West Sussex uh, record office there in Chichester, there are two letters from Jabez Druitt to Montague's cousin, Emily Druitt. Now, Emily Druitt was the daughter of Montague's uncle, Robert. Remember Uncle Robert? He was the, the, the eminent physician. Um, they were, Robert Druitt family was from Christchurch, but they had lo- relocated to the West End of London at this time. So Emily Druitt is in London. Jabez Druitt is in the East End writing to, to Emily. Now, what was going, I was able, when I, went to the, when I went to Chichester and actually looked at the content of the letters, I was able to see what was going on. That Emily at this time was doing genealogical research, and she was basically writing to everybody named Druitt anywhere in England and Ireland. And, and one of the people that she identified by that name was this fellow Jabez Druitt. So Emily must have written to Jabez asking about any possible relationship. And the, the two letters we have from Jabez basically s- saying that he's not aware of any relationship, but he's not sure, and he's going to check with his other relatives. And, and the second one ends with him uh, promising to write again, but there's no further, there's no further correspondence from him. So it's up in the air, really, frankly, as to whether Jabez Druitt is a Druitt family relative. But we do know that in the year 1888, there is correspondence between Jabez Druitt in the East End and at least Montague's cousin Emily in the, in the West End of London. So we know there's something. You know what? It wasn't Emily. I'm sorry. I've been saying Emily. It was, it was Gertrude Druitt. Emily was another daughter, but it was Gertrude who was doing the genealogical research. Sorry about that. But there was correspondence between Jabez Druitt and Gertrude Druitt in the year 1888. So, you know, it's just interesting. It doesn't prove anything. It doesn't show anything for certain. We don't even know that Jabez was a relative. But it's just another interesting piece to the puzzle. Um, Robert, do you have a, a question or something you'd like to add? Maybe I'd, you could chime in on that whole People's Palace. Um, uh, what, what, what's your take on, on Druitt uh, being li- – I not to – bring up the argument again but what's your take just out of curiosity of, of Druitt's name appearing on that subscription list well uh, I think more than likely I mean he's got a connection with Cook just because of the English class system of the 19th century but uh, you know as Ali points out that doesn't mean that they're closely associated but no um, the, the class system of the time seems to you know indicate that you you, know, you travel in the same social circles and and you know him and Cook would at least you know, be aware of each other after Winchester through Blackheath, and 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 even various things that uh, Druitt have been in. Druitt may have even asked Cook like uh, donate um, or or time to uh, his own causes in return. Mm-hmm. Right. It could be. It could be. And um, um, 
Go ahead, Andy. I, I was going to say, I might also mention that uh, in addition to Jabez Druid, there was another Druid family in the East End of London at the time, too. Um, and I think uh, I think Chris Scott uncovered them, but it very interestingly, in, in Jabez's letter, he mentions them, too, that there's this other Druid family, and the guy is a zinc worker, um, and he lives in the East End, too. So I know nothing about that family, but there's at least one other Druid family in the East End, too, okay. at the time. Uh, just this little point of fact about the uh, the uh, Toynbee Hall um, deal is that, um, the, uh, as far as I know, the way that their uh, establishment was set up was that they would have students from Oxford and Cambridge go into the East End and uh, live and work out of the East End. Um, students from Oxford and Cambridge uh, lodge, right. lodging um, on Commercial Street. Right next to George Yard, and that that was part of a community outreach uh, program involving students from Oxford and Cambridge. So, I just wanted to get that, that little point of fact out of the way. Now, you had said briefly um, that the suspect candidacy and being in the East End at the time, um, mm-hmm. his connection to Cook doesn't place him in the East End. Um, no, no. Um, you had mentioned the train services uh, right. to go to King Bet's Walk that may have placed him in the East End. Well, near, right, very near the East End, the Cannon Street Station, which would have been a mile from Mitre Square, so less right. than a mile. Right, and you also make the point that, with the exception of Hutchinson, there isn't any other suspect right. in, that we can place in the East End at the time of the murders. Right. Now, you had brought up um, on the message boards whether Dr. White Eyes mm-hmm. Holt um, is yeah. a better suspect than Druitt because Holt can be placed in the East End. Um, I was I was being facetious, but yeah. right, right. Yeah. Um, but but it is an interesting debate as far yeah. as what makes a legitimate suspect. You know, obviously, if you have a suspect, and if it, you know, here's the thing: we're talking, we get mixed up. We're talking about two different things. We're talking about our trying to identify suspects for Jack the Ripper as if it's a, some kind of a legal proceeding. Obviously, if you're in court and you're trying to convict someone, you better be able to place them there at the scene of the crime. That's that's a given. We're not doing that here. What we're doing is saying, is is Montague Druid a plausible suspect? We don't have to place him in the East End at the time of a murder to say that he's a plausible suspect. And the argument I'm making is, well, there's this, there's this comical Dr. White-Eyes, Dr. Holt, who uh, who's, you know, we can place him in the East End at the... You know, vaguely, at the time the murders were taking place, does that mean he's a he's a better suspect than Druitt? No, the police never took him seriously. So, just placing somebody physically there doesn't make them a better suspect necessarily than someone that you can't place there. We, we can say Druitt had access to the East End. He he probably, in his daily commute, came close enough to it to uh, be familiar with at least some of the East End. Uh, he certainly had the opportunity to be there. Anything because I'll get in trouble again. <laughs> Don't go ahead, Allie. Go ahead. <laughs> no, go ahead, go ahead, Allie. No, it's okay. I'm just going to sit here in silence. Oh, come on now. I will not point out at all how riding a train through an area doesn't necessarily. <laughs> no, he got off the train. He, if, if I'm right. <laughs> If I'm right, and I don't know 100%, but if I'm right and he got off the train at Cannon Street Station, that puts him a few minutes walk from Mitre Square. So. You know, I don't know that he ever walked that direction and walked to Mitre Square or into the East End, but at least it puts him in that very area, uh, probably on a nearly daily basis. So that's all I'm saying. 
And Druitt being a, a contemporary police suspect, I mean, he was he was named um, by uh, Melvin McNaughton as one of the most likely suspects to be the murderer. Although you know right. that that was shot with um, errors. I mean, your work, Andy, and, and the stuff that you and others have uncovered is a is an earnest attempt to flesh out the facts. You know, I mean, I understand that. That um, you know, you're you're just trying to flesh out the facts, and if there isn't right. any connection with Druitt in the East End, um, then you know, you're just kind of looking at the possibilities. So. Yeah, well, that's what's so frustrating about this kind of research is that we're looking at stuff that's 120 years old, and and we get these little snippets, and we say, okay, well, you know, he knew he knew Cook here, and and he knew Cook there, and they were neighbors here, and their neighbors there, and. And these guys, there's a Jabez Druid in the East End, and there's all of these, these potential things there. But because we're 120 years on, you can't go back and tie it all together. You know, that's the frustrating thing about the nature of this kind of historical research. So yeah, we do the best we can, and we just show what the possibilities are. And and you know, and there's going to be someone like Allie that says, no, nah, that that's not the way it was, or you, you, that doesn't prove anything or show anything, and and. You know, Ellie, you're entitled to your opinion, and that's 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 fine. I'm just trying to show that uh, Druid had the opportunity to be there, and that he was, in fact, a suspect. And prior to finding Farquharson, um, the earliest we could date his suspecthood to was 1894 in the McNaughton Memorandum. Well, now we know that Farquharson was blabbing about Druid already in 1891, so that pushes Druid's suspecthood back to within a couple of years, basically, at the time of the murders. So we're getting closer and we're getting warmer here. But really what I'm interested in is not so much whether Montague Druid is guilty or not, because we'll never know that. Well, we might find we might find an alibi for him and we might find he's not guilty, but we'll never be able to prove him guilty. What I'm interested in is answering the question, why was he a suspect? Because he's such an unlikely person to be suspected. He's not a... He's not a crazed Jew. He's not an immigrant. You know, he's got no history of violence. McNaughton knew that. Farquharson knew that. Why, why is Druid a suspect? That's what I'm trying to answer. just wanted to uh, ask a quick question about uh, uh, Druid and money. Um, I know when his, his father died in uh, 1885 right. and that he did, not, he did not inherit that much, but at, at the time right. of uh, Montague... John Druitt's death, uh, he, he had a fair, uh, fair amount of uh, money. I was wondering yes. uh, where that came from. That's a good question. Well, the money that he had on him, uh, on his body, uh, we presume... Or just total. That, uh, oh, go ahead. Well, not, not, yeah, both. Like, the money he had on him, but also, like, you know, the money that he left, like the amount of money uh, okay. that he left at the time. Okay. Well, as far as the money that he had on him, we presumed there were, there were two checks. We presumed that one of the checks was his, his salary for the term at Valentine School in, in Blackheath. The term had just ended, and we, of course we know from the inquest report that Montague was sacked, but he presumably was paid his salary. That's how it was done at the time. The, the schoolmasters, the teachers were paid at the end of the term for that term just concluded. So the larger check would have been his salary. The smaller check, we don't know for sure might have been some kind of a severance pay or something like that. We don't know. He also had a fair amount of, of, of cash, of silver on him, too. Um, we don't know exactly where that came. But we do know, you know, that that he must have had a fair amount of money during the latter years of his life. 
what was also found on Druitt's body was a first-class rail pass between Blackheath and London. Now, that's a first-class rail path. He didn't pass. He didn't necessarily have to buy a first-class pass, but he could afford one. And I did some pricing on that, some, some looking on that, and this would have been, you know, a lot of money, um, several hundred dollars certainly in, in, in our equivalent today. So he went out and, and got himself a first-class rail pass, an expensive ticket, basically, between Blackheath and London. He rented expensive legal chambers in King's Bench Walk, very prestigious chambers. They had to have been very expensive. So we know that he had income. He had money. As you said, he did not inherit a lot from his father. So where that money came from, I would, you know, the, the most plausible guess I have is it came from his legal work, that he was far more of a successful barrister than we give him credit for. We know that he had cases. He had cases in 1888. He had a case the week that he died. And I suspect he did rather well in his, his legal work and, and was able to afford these things. Just sort of leads me to another like a bit of speculation is that just as uh, Druid as a suspect in terms of time, mm-hmm. I mean available free time, he seems to be like a lot of people said, oh, you know, he can't because he played cricket on, on the day that <laughs> uh, 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 Chapman was murdered. But but, but for me, uh, it seems that Drew seems like a very busy man. You know, he's yeah. a teacher in Blackheath. He, he's a barrister. Um, he, he plays cricket all the time. Uh, yeah. It seems like he has very little, very little spare time. He doesn't have a lot of spare time. That's true. That's true. And that is one of the arguments against him. I'll say that. Um, the whole cricketing thing, well, we could, we could get started on that if you want. But uh, it's, it, there's no alibi. There's no direct alibi for him. I I searched that out very carefully this summer when I went to Bournemouth and went to the public library there and I checked the local Bournemouth and Christchurch newspapers. I checked the reports of the cricket matches when uh, when uh, Nichols' murder took place and uh, Druitt does not participate in any cricket matches in, in Dorset in the Bournemouth area at exactly that time. Now, it's close. He's, he's in, Bournemouth, uh, in uh, Dorset playing cricket on September 1st, you know, Nichols is murdered on 31st of August. But you have to remember that the murder took place in the wee hours of the morning, and the cricket match doesn't take place till midday on the 1st. That gives Druitt basically a day and a half to get from London to Dorset, which is ample time. Um, so there's some, there's some close calls with the Chapman murder. You know, he's, he, he, If it was Druitt, he murders Chapman early in the morning and then goes to Blackheath to play cricket a few hours later. It's physically possible, but it's... It's, it is stretching things a little bit. So some of these are, are arguments that would mitigate against Druitt, but yet there's no direct conflict there. There's no direct alibi. You can't say that Druitt couldn't have committed these murders because he was playing cricket somewhere else at the time. There's, there's always ample time for him to get to his next engagement. But it is interesting. He's a very busy man. You're right. What else um, here before we wrap it up? I want to know two things. Um, any any other interesting sites uh, that you visited back in June? I believe you said you July. Were... July and August is when I was uh, there. Yeah. But, uh, I'm sorry. Oh, oh, that and um, and I just wanted to know what you're working on next. If you have any, if you have anything um, currently going on research-wise into Druid that you'd like to tell us about. But go ahead on as far as other the other places you visited um, besides Winchester College. 
Yeah, as I said, I was at uh, Chichester at the West Sussex Record Office there. Very interesting. That's where I found the correspondence between Jabez Druid and, and, and Emily, uh, and, excuse me, and Gertrude Druid. Um, but uh, some other interesting things in that in that file in the records office there, including uh, there was a, a lock of hair, uh, of Gertrude Druid's hair, which isn't significant at all for, you know, whether Montague Druid is guilty or not, but it was just very interesting holding... Uh, drew it hair in my hand that was a, quite an experience there um, I was able to make a, a trip uh, to Wimborne Minster Druitt's hometown I've been there before but I was able to go there again and visit the, the church there where Druitt was uh, baptized and where he was buried from go by the grave again and see uh, Westfield House where he grew up so I was able to kind of visit those places again which is always always of interest um, so yeah and as far as what I'm working on now, not, um, nothing directly. I'm still intrigued with the, and I don't want to get into the whole thing, but the, the John Henry Lonsdale character, because there's there's definitely a, a connection there between Lonsdale and Druitt's family, and, and we're making another assumption, but between Lonsdale and Druitt. And uh, Lonsdale is a classmate of Mevel McNaughton's at Eton, and I still wonder if Lonsdale might have played a part in this private information that McNaughton had if he knew Druitt and he knew McNaughton and if there's something there. I, I met with Lonsdale's great-granddaughter in London uh, over the summer, but unfortunately she doesn't know a lot about her great-grandfather, so it's a kind of a mystery area there, but that's that's something I'll be doing more work on. And I'd like to get to Oxford or at least communicate with them and see if the archivist there would be as helpful as the, uh, the Winchester archivist was, because that's really a kind of a missing piece there. We don't know a whole lot of Druitt's time at Oxford and what went on there. And I think that's a critical time because it's it's during those Oxford years where his uh, academic performance begins to fall off, you know, and he ends up with just a third class degree. Uh, something may have been going on there during the Oxford years. We may be able to find something out. I don't know. But that's the next thing I'd like to do. Right. Uh, yeah, it seems like it seems like um, the private information that that McNaughton had is it's sort of an, an elusive quest for a lot of people yeah. that have that have, that have hunted Druitt. Uh, but um, I was thinking of something more practical. Are you, are you still uh, searching for uh, um, the inquest papers uh, that may tell us a lot more? Well, I'd love to find them, but I, I don't. I'm not searching for them because I don't believe they exist anymore. I think they've probably been lost. But but yeah, if we could find the inquest, you, you're talking about the Druitt's inquest, the exactly. inquest Druitt's death. Yeah, if we could find them, they would potentially answer a lot of questions. There's one conclusion that I've come to, and that is that uh, Druitt's brother uh, William Harvey Druitt, who testified at the inquest, may well have manipulated those proceedings. And I say that because um, Montague and William had an uncle. I mentioned it before, James Druitt who himself was a coroner in the Bournemouth Christchurch area. And I, I found a newspaper article that indicated that William Henry Druitt, Montague's brother, William Henry, actually, who was a solicitor, he actually presided over a coroner's inquest. I don't know why, because uh, he wasn't a coroner himself, but there was at least once where he presided over a coroner's inquest. So my thinking is that he was very familiar having an uncle that was a coroner and presiding over at least one inquest himself, he was familiar with those proceedings and that he could have easily gone in there and, and manipulated the whole shebang, um, you know, for the purpose of 
protecting the family's reputation or whatever. And so that, I think that throws everything into doubt now, the whole suicide note and everything, that, because we have all of that from William's testimony. William's testimony is very suspect, I think, now. So, yeah, if we could find the inquest papers, that'd be great, but I just have a feeling they're probably gone because nobody's well, able to find them. And for and for a prominent family such as the Druids, there doesn't seem to be much press coverage over uh, That's something true. as large as this. And and one wonders why that is. One wonders if there wasn't a, a tacit agreement with the press there to keep it quiet or something. Because you're right, it, it, you know the whole the whole account of Druitt's uh, death appears really nowhere in any of the major London papers. Uh, only in this uh, one or two small small papers that deal with. Uh, you know, the area there where his body was found. And I looked while I was in Bournemouth, I looked in the local Bournemouth area papers for any news there that might have been reported about Druitt's death. And the only one I found was that one story that's been circulated, the sad death of a local barrister. Uh, that's the only article I found in any of those papers dealing with his death. So, yeah, um, my guess is that they're probably, since this was a prominent, respected family, the the press probably just agreed to keep hands off on it because of the scandal of suicide and so forth. Um, but it is interesting that there's not a whole lot about about it. Now, now, fair amount has been written about Druid, and he's been fairly well researched. I mean, basically from Farson to Cullen and and yep. on down the line to, to modern people like D.L. Layton. And, and Layton. I was wondering if there's, yeah, if, if there's a, a, a book in the future for Andy Spalick <laughs> if I could find the time, um, it would be interesting. It would be interesting to, to write one. I, my, my son asked me recently if uh, he thought, if I thought I knew more about Montague Druitt than anyone else in the world did. And, and at this point, maybe so. I don't know, because I've been studying this guy for so long and, and finding these new facts about him. But if I had the time to sit down and write a book, yeah, I probably would. But uh, no concrete plans on that at this point. I'll keep you posted if that changes. Uh, thank you, Andy, for being on the show again today. My pleasure. And for going over to Winchester and uncovering these images and all of this new information about Druitt's earlier years at Winchester College. Yeah, and I, I just think it goes to show that there is a lot of stuff out there that hasn't been found yet, and, and who knows what else might be found. We just have to keep plugging away, and we have to keep doing the research. Um, just have to keep doing it. Yeah. And um, if the listeners don't have the information that and the photographs that uh, Andy has provided, it, it appeared in Ripperologist 96 of October 2008, and you can contact the folks at Ripperologist magazine to subscribe or, or probably end up getting that single issue. And in the latest uh, issue of Ripperologist, issue 97, that came out in November, had um, a follow-up article of sorts concerning the uh, photographer, uh, right, involved. Savage. Mm-hmm. And had some interesting pictures of the uh, Knights of the Round Table that I wasn't aware of before, mm-hmm. which was, was kind of cool to see. Let me just uh, let me just say one other thing. I, I, I mentioned Suzanne Foster and how helpful she was, but really I should take time here to say that uh, we appreciate the cooperation of Winchester College and their permission to uh, reproduce these pictures. They were, of course, they were, of course, all published with the permission of the college, so I probably should formally acknowledge that and, and uh, express my appreciation for them doing that. Okay. Well, and we'll call that a podcast. Okay. Right. Thanks again for being on, Andy. My pleasure. Anytime.
And that was Rippercast, episode 35, Young Druid at Winchester with Andrew Spalick. I want to again thank Andy Spalick for being on the show today and also Robert McLaughlin and Allie Ryder. We are a weekly podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders available at www.casebook.org slash podcasts. If you have any questions or comments or you'd like to contact the show, you can do so by emailing us at rippernet at mac.com. And I want to thank everybody for listening, and we'll see you next week.